Well, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves this morning in 1 John. If you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read our text for us. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 3, and we'll read all the way to verse 11. And as I prepare to read this text to you, I want to sort of preface with just a couple of words. These, these are hard words from this text. This is, a, this is a heavy text. This is a challenging text. And whenever we approach a, a heavy text or a challenging text like the one that's before us, and like we'll have several times through our study of 1 John, there's a tendency for our defenses to go up or explanations. We're kind of waiting for certain explanations to get us off the hook when we're in those difficult places. I want to ask you to bed all those concerns down. Let your defenses come down. Pray for the Spirit to help you hear this word and as it is expounded, receive this word as was originally intended through the power of the Holy Spirit through John for the churches in Asia Minor so that this would become a fresh and living and powerful word for you and me as we lean into its teaching this morning, all right? So let's lean into it now together. First John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard this word from the apostle of love, the apostle John himself, we now sit in this word with you in the presence of the Spirit. And we ask for that Spirit who alone can change us to do just that. Come now in proportion to our needs. Teach us the meaning of this word. And not just that we would have the knowledge of what it is that John is saying, but that we would have true knowledge. Knowledge that would change us. 
and would make us people who are marked by commandment keeping and marked by love. Father, bless us now as we sit in this word. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. And give us wills to obey all that you would ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these believers in Asia Minor? That's who John is writing to. Churches who are struggling. Churches who've been infiltrated with false teaching. Churches who have seen people that they ate bread with. People that they prayed with and for. People that they worshipped with. People that they loved. Forsake the faith and leave the church. Can you imagine? Can you just get in the shoes of this first century, first generation church of believers where the dawning light of the gospel is shining upon them and there's excitement and there's joy about who Christ is and what he's done and the growth of the gospel and yet in the midst of that joy there is this incredible heartache. There's this incredible sadness. There's this incredible grief and loss that those whom you love, those who had named the name of Christ, those who looked like Christians, those who talked like Christians, those for as far as you could see lived like Christians, but John tells us in John chapter 2 that they went out from us because they were never of us, but who indeed were not Christians. John uses that language in John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were never of us, because he doesn't want us to draw the conclusion that they were once Christians and now they're just not. He didn't say, you know, they once were of us, but now they're just not of us anymore. No, that's not what he says. They went out from us because they were never really, actually, truthfully part of us. Oh, it looked like it, sounded like it. On the surface, it appeared that way, but it became clear over time as they wedded themselves to false teaching and began to move away, he says later in chapter 4, go beyond the truths of the gospel, that they were never actually of us. Some of you don't have to imagine what that's like. You have family members, you have friends who once named the name of Christ who, who no longer do. I have a former pastor friend that that's true of. Some of the hardest things we ever go through. As John writes this letter, he writes to a people who are going, no, wait. John, you wrote to me in your gospel that Jesus is the good shepherd and the sheep are in the Father's hand and you never can the sheep be plucked out of the Father's hand. John says, you're right. I've told you that from the beginning. He actually 
mentions that language here in this text. I haven't changed my theology, haven't changed my message, I haven't even changed the way I believe about salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. The question is, are you saved? Truly. And in this case, they proved that they were never saved by the fact that they went out from us. And so John is writing to this group that's wondering about that and maybe even is asking at a at a core heart level, the questions that I asked when a pastor friend of mine left the faith. How do I know that I won't leave the faith? How can I be sure that what happened to them is not going to happen to me? I will tell you in that moment when that took place in my own history and life, I felt, I felt to be on shaky ground. It felt very precarious to me. How, how could someone so committed, I mean, spent years of his life, it's a master's degree, has influenced others, others have come to know Christ through his ministry, and he leaves, he leaves the faith. How, how is that even possible? All kinds of questions, all kinds of concerns raise up in one's heart when something that looks really genuine turns out to not be. That's the audience that John is writing to. And so as we've talked about already in the first couple of messages in this series, we said, John says, I want to give you some tests. Some, we might say proof tests that will draw to the surface whether or not you're truly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard the saying, the proof is in the pudding. You know that phrase? The proof is in the pudding. My grandmother used to say it all the time. Proof is in the pudding. What does that phrase mean, proof is in the pudding? Well, you know it. It means that pudding might... It might look good. The pudding might smell good. But to prove is whether the pudding tastes good. Because the pudding is about tasting. It's not about smelling. It's not about looking. That's not the nature of the substance of pudding. Pudding is for tasting. And we've all seen food that looked good and didn't good, right? We've also seen food that didn't look good and tasted really good. And you, you know what that means? You cannot judge a book by its cover. And John's saying, I want to give you a true taste of Christianity. I want you to know the proof in the pudding with regards to Christianity. And he says, I want to give you in this passage two proofs. And then I want to talk to you about the power behind those proofs. I want to give you two proofs, and then I want to talk to you about the power that's behind those proofs. Now, the first proof, both of these proofs are really straightforward in the text, even though they're quite uncomfortable. The first proof is this. If you know God... You will keep his commandments. If you know God, you will keep his commandments. That's what, that's what John says. 
Do you want to have proof that you're a follower of Christ or you truly know him? Keep his commandments. John, we said, is in these tests, there's three central tests he's going to be giving. There's a test that's theological or doctrinal. Are you believing as you ought to believe the true gospel message as proclaimed originally from me? John's already addressed that. In the first four verses of chapter 1, he's going to address it again later in the book. But he also says there's another test, and it's the moral test. And that's what we're talking about here. He's asking, do what it is that you say with your mouth, whoever says I know him, verse 4, whoever says that they know him, they say, but don't keep his commandments, they don't really know him. In fact, John uses a really strong word, doesn't he? He calls them a liar. He calls them a liar. I don't think many of us, to be quite honest, and this is, you know, I don't know your heart, so I want to be careful, but I don't think this is typically true, that we would draw a line as dark and as bright as John just did. I don't know that we would do that. To say, you know what? They don't keep his commandments. Say they don't. They're a liar. In fact, we might say something like, I thought this was the apostle of love. Then when we called him John, puzzled, that didn't sound very very loving. (laughs) Call someone a liar? Doesn't sound right. But of course, let's get in John's shoes for a minute. In, in John's shoes, John is saying it would be a lie for me to not call that person a liar. Because if you know him, you keep his commandments. That's a bright line. That, that's an uncomfortably bright line. You want someone coming to you and saying, you want to know if you really know God? You keep his commandments? I don't think hardly one of us would say, oh yeah, I love that test. Oh yeah, give me that. Give me that test. Give me that. that one, I always feel good when I finish that test. I see that 100% marked at the top with a smiley face. No, no, we never feel that way. And this, that's what John says, isn't it? I mean, you make sure, I'm saying a hard thing here. I'm going to be sure if you start throwing things at me that you understand what I'm saying and that it's true to what John is saying. Is that what you're reading? Seeing what John's saying here? That's what, that's what I'm reading too. Now, as I look at this text, I begin to go, okay, that's, if that's the case, I want to know what it means to really know him. Isn't that the hinge of this section, verses 3 and 4? By this you can be sure that you know him if you keep his commandments. Know him. Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. I'd like to know, what does it mean to know him? (laughs) That seems pretty important since that's the hinge on what these verses are talking about. And John is distinguishing two kinds of knowings or at least two kinds of knowings that we see in the Bible. Knowings that theologians like to call mental assent or intellectual assent and saving trust. Mental assent on the one hand, saving trust 
on the other. Let me illustrate this distinction for you by using an illustration that our officer nominees were going through this last Wednesday night. So we gathered, we actually were in the chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith on saving faith as the Lord would have it. And we begin to walk through the distinctions between knowledge and assent and trust and their dimensions and degrees of knowing. And we acknowledge from James chapter 2 that even the demons believe and shudder. I don't think anybody's in here ready to claim that they're saved. But there's a kind of knowledge that they have, and it's a knowledge that's true enough that makes them shake in their boots. That's what James is telling us. But they're not converted, and they're not followers of Jesus. So there's that kind of knowledge. And then there's Romans 10 kind of knowledge, where he says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, then you will be saved. We use the illustration of the parachute. Some of you have done this crazy thing, jumping out of planes with a parachute on. Some of you have been in the military and you've had to do it. Some of you do it recreationally. It's concerning. It's deeply concerning. Some of you do this. I'll tell you what I would be doing if I was in the plane. I had that parachute on my back. You know what I'd be doing? They go, Nate, do you trust the parachute? I said, let me tell you about this parachute. Parachute has this incredible fabric and canvas that someone's going to hold me up, and these straps are so tight there'd be no way that it would, it would, it would ever fail me. And then if I pull this strap, it's going to. But if that doesn't work, then I have a safety strap over here. Then I, I, I believe with great certainty that this parachute is completely safe if I jump out of this airplane and I pull this trigger. But there is no way I'm jumping out of this plane to ever test whether that would be true. I have intellectual assent. But I don't have trust. Trust is that moment where you lean out the door and you jump. John is saying some of us know all about Christ. We could lecture on Christ. We could do the fine nuances of theology with the best of them. We just don't really know him. We've never really trusted him. The language John uses there in verse 4 is he says the truth is not in him. Notice he doesn't say the truth is not about him. He doesn't have some conception of it. He just says it's not inside of him. In other words, the he has some grasp of the truth, but the truth has not really grasped him yet. It's not gotten into him to where he is controlled by, he's in union with, he's given himself over to Christ and the truth of who he is and what it is he's done. That's really different. That's when you know you've trusted. You know when you know you've trusted? So you can begin to ask yourself this question and you can answer it with integrity. Is there anything that I would hold back from my Lord should he ask me for it? If he told me to sell everything I have and follow him, and he's been known to do that. If he tells me to go to the cross 
for naming his name, or to be beheaded in a foreign country, or to help my neighbor because I see them in need, I would instant, I would, I would answer yes to that. That's when you know that you're holding the world lightly because you're holding Jesus tightly. That's what's going on. You're trusting in him. You know, at that moment, Christ is your life. Sometimes we don't really understand that Christ is our life until he's all we've got. Sometimes God wants to show us that, and so he begins taking things away from us. He begins removing things from us. Our dreams, some of our relationships that we've idolated, kind of held as idols, our health, things that we've all, conceptions we've always had about ourselves, he begins dismantling. He begins, he begins leveraging a little pain, remove some of those idols, in order to say, you really love me? Is, am I enough? You really committed to me? And that's the question that John is raising. He's saying there's a whole group of them that attended church, the 1045 service in Middle Tennessee on the corner of church in 3rd and downtown Franklin. There's a whole group of them that went out from here because they were never of here. They never really embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. He, there's nothing that wrecks my soul more than to know within our midst there are those who claim to know Christ and don't know him. There's nothing. I can't talk about it long because I won't be able to get on in this service. But the recognition is it is highly likely that within a room right here, there are those who carry the card of Christ, but they have no Christ inside. No realness, no genuineness, no true commitment to him. And he says here, it shows up when you are asked to do something you don't want to do and you choose against it. That's what happens. You know why he focuses on commands? Do you know why we don't do stuff? Let me, just, let me just give you an insight into the human heart. This will be so enlightening. Do you know why you don't do stuff? Because you don't want to do it. Because you don't want to do it. And so when you, you see a command, you go, ah, that looks, that looks bad. I think, I'll, I think I'll do this. You're thinking to yourself, my life will be better if I don't do what God commands. It'll be easier, it'll be happier, it'll be more joyful, whatever it is. See, this, this is going to be better. This is the path of least resistance. I will take this path, though it's diametrically opposed to the commandment of God. Now, when you're saying that, you don't think of it this way, but let me just unpack what's really going on in the heart. You're saying God has created commands that are not in keeping with his preservation and nurture and encouragement of my joy and blessing in life. I tend to think that my decisions, even though they're against the commandments of God, will be, make me happier, more joyful, and more blessed. And so I will choose me rather than God. And you know what John is saying? You may not even know him, if that's your heart. It's quite possible you don't even know him, if that's your heart. We just read from Psalm 19... Where David is saying, your word is like honey. Your commandments are like the drippings of the honeycomb. 
How in the world can someone ever say that kind of language unless your heart has been so captured by Christ and the beauty of who Christ is and what it is that he's called you to that you look at his commands and you go, that is my life to be conformed into the image of Jesus and to follow his commands. I see his blessing for me in his commands. Now, the only way that that can happen is that you quit seeing the commands merely as a point of condemnation or as some restriction, but you begin to see those commands as the very display of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now, let me tell you how this works here within our text. You see, he begins talking about commandments in verses 7 and 8. He's already mentioned keeping the commandments, but now he's zeroing in on one commandment. See how he begins to talk singular? Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from beginning, the old commandment. See how he's, he's gone singular? He said, keep the commandments, and now it's He's zeroing in on one. You know the one he's zeroing in on? Well, he doesn't actually tell us. He doesn't actually tell us, but you can derive it pretty clearly because what does verses 9 and 11 focus on? Loving one another. Uh, Loving one another. The commandment is the command to love. It's clearly within the mind of John. Now, when you begin to know the gospel of John, it makes all that much more sense because in John chapter 13... 34 and 35, Jesus says, I write to you a new commandment. Oh, that's the language he's getting here in in verse 8. That's why he refers to this as a new commandment. What is the new commandment that Jesus gives to us? That you love one another just as I have loved you. But John is saying, when Jesus gave us that new commandment, it was already old. I mean, you can go back into the Old Testament and you can find... That commandment, Leviticus 19, 18, for instance, love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. In the Old Testament, we can look at many instances. It's an old commandment, but he says it's now a new commandment. Why? Notice why he, what he says. Which is true in him and in you. He means to say that the commandments have now taken on an entirely different light in Jesus. And when they take on an entirely different light in Jesus, and you're in Jesus, they take an entirely different light in you. Think of it this way. When you read the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure you do on a very regular basis, when you read the Ten Commandments, do you do so for inspirational reading? I'm being honest. Do you, do you read the commandments? You go, I want, to be, I want to be inspired today. I just want to feel good today. I'm going to read the commandments. Not typically, right? It's like you just start your day feeling bad about yourself. You'll read the Ten Commandments and you'll move directly to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus unpacking of them. And as he begins to get into the heart and he begins to bring out all of the issues in the commandments in the heart, you begin to realize, I'm in trouble. Like big time. That's one of the purposes of the law. John tells us this. Paul tells us this. Galatians chapter 3. That the law condemns. It shows us who we ought to be. And immediately when we see it, it shows us who we're not. But in Christ, 
that changes. What if you looked at the law through the lens of Jesus? Through the lens of Jesus, what do I mean? Jesus is the perfect keeper of the law. When you read the Ten Commandments, you're reading a sketch of Jesus' resume. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, the unpacking of all of the heart-attending corruptions that go along with those commands, you're reading what Jesus never fell into and completely fulfilled. You're reading his accomplishments. Now, when you look at them then in Christ, you can go, it's a beautiful thing. Jesus has fulfilled all this. Now, it gets better. Because he's fulfilled all that, not just for himself, but for you. For you. When you look at the Ten Commandments, and you look at the unpacking of the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, and you see them in Christ, you realize that all of the righteousness that Christ has won has been absolutely credited to your account. So much so that as you look at the law now, you realize this law doesn't condemn me. This law is a picture of what has been fulfilled for me in Jesus. I rejoice in the law. It is honey to me. It is sweet. When I see thou shalt not commit adultery, and I know that I've lusted, but I realize that Jesus has paid for that lust, and I realize that all of my sexual immoralities have been nailed to the cross, I realize there's no condemnation in him, and I rejoice in the sweetness of his law. See how different that is? You're looking at the law in Christ. Now, when it's true in him and true in you is when you make this pivot. Because that is true, it's condemnation I am freed from. And his righteousness fully credited to me. And I know that he's broke the penalty and the presence of sin, or the penalty and the power, I should say, of sin in my life. And one day, in the near future, he will eradicate the presence of sin in my life. What I want to do is to be about killing that sin and obeying those commandments all the days of my life so I can spur on ahead in the direction that he's called me. What John is saying, can you imagine a person who would have the gall to say, oh yeah, I invited Jesus into my life. He saved me, the ultimate power of the universe. I... I have his spirit dwelling within me and he's radically transformed me from the inside out. I just really haven't felt very changed by it. I have found I haven't really wanted to obey his commands though. And I, though I, so I haven't been doing so. John says you don't know him. It's almost blasphemous if you think about it. That I have the dwelling presence of God in my life? And I don't want to keep his commandments? John says these are absolutely incompatible. Now you can begin to see how radically different it is though when your heart is being situated in the love of Christ 
and in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then turned outward in the obedience of Christ, it begins to renew you in power. And that's what he's talking about here in this passage. He says, the proof is, if you know me, you keep my commandments. If you know me, proof too, you will love one another. Verses 9 to 11. And the reason that you will do those things is because Jesus was a commandment keeper and Jesus loved others. And so you can't be in Jesus and say, I don't love commandments. And you can't be in Jesus and say, I don't love others because Jesus loved others and Jesus keeps commandments. That's how it works. And so for some of us in this room, that's really, it's really unnerving. Well, here's where I want to be really careful. There, there are two things I, I want to be careful of. I want to be careful not to speak in such a way as to erode what should be true assurance in your life based upon Christ's work and the change that he's brought about in your life. I don't want to erode in any way, and that's not the goal of 1 John, to erode in any way the true assurance that you ought to have, the certain assurance that John is aiming for in this text. I don't want to see that eroded in any way, though you do need to examine yourself. All of us need to do that. But I don't want to fall off on the other side either. I don't want to give continued strength and appreciation or desire or embrace of false assurance that you ought not have. Where you really should be unsettled by the things that John is saying, and you're not. I don't want to erode the good assurance that comes from being rooted in Christ and the change and the transformation that he's brought, but I don't want to bolster false insurance where you genuinely should be unsettled and uncomfortable in his presence. And it seems as if what John is trying to do here is to put us right in the crucible of that experience of both clinging only to Christ and resting and being sure that yes, he has brought about this change in my life. I see the manifest fruit. John is not asking us to be perfect. He's already said, don't forget. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, and we all sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. He's just giving you incredible encouragement. He goes, when you fall in your commandment keeping, when you fall in your obedience, you have Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and the true believer runs to him both for forgiveness and for formation, for change. But the one who sins and doesn't run to Jesus the one who sins and has kind of made an alliance with it, the one who looks at his commandments and never really wants to follow them and deliberately and willfully continues to go against the will of God, John is not giving that person assurance in this passage. To that person, he's saying, come to know Jesus for the first time. Come and meet him. He stands ready to save you. He loves you. You have an advocate with him. 
And when we begin to see that Jesus, the perfect commandment keeper, came to die for failing commandment breakers. When Jesus, the, the perfect lover of God, became flesh and lived a perfect life and died for those who hate God, Romans 5, 8. And we realize that he saved us and transformed us to walk according to his will. And we see what he did to accomplish that for us. It begins to melt us inside. So much so that we begin to say to ourselves, how would I ever not walk in the will of the one who has loved me to that degree? Why would I ever want to stray from one who has loved me to that degree? Has he not proven that if he gives me a command, it's clearly because he loves me? Because he's already given me his own son. I don't have to question it. He's already proven it in giving me Jesus. Now in response to that gift, I want to run in the way of Christ. And I want to be a commandment keeper. That's the heart of a believer. That's the heart of a Christian. I think that's what 1 John means. In verse 5, and he says this, but whoever keeps his word In him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, Wesley and others use this to speak about entire sanctification. If we could become perfect, we cannot. It's not what this verse is trying to say. But it is to say this, that as the love of Christ becomes more and more real and present in your own heart by faith, as you, even as some of you I pray this morning, have glimpsed afresh what he's done for you, and it's warmed you towards him, and it's driven you to want to follow him even more, the more and more you take that in, and the more and more you respond in keeping his commandments, based upon the love of Christ, you know what begins to happen? His love increases to perfection in you. His love more and more completes your life. His love more and more rules in your life. His love more and more takes over areas of your life that were raging wildfires of sin. He is snuffed out by the power of the Spirit in the gospel. That's what you begin to see when you begin to see his love and you begin to respond in obedience to his love is that more and more areas of your life get conquered by his love. You want to see more and more of your life conquered by the love of Jesus? Do you? Obey his commands in love of him. And that will happen. His love will increase in you. And the perfection of his love will conquer more and more of your life. As a body of Christ, we want to be a people who don't merely say, you know, when I was six years old, I vacation Bible school, I professed faith in Christ, but I really just haven't walked with Him most of my life. What John is saying here 
is how is your life today, right now, presently, not, not past? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you walking as he walks? As you say yes to his commands and to keep his word in the love of Christ, not for earning salvation, but because he's already earned it. Because he's already earned it and given it to you as a gift. You now get the joy of just running in obedience. with no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You just get to run in the joy of commandment keeping. The more and more that happens, the more and more the perfection of the love of Christ happens in you. We need to pray for each other in this. If you have questions, maybe rising in your heart, I don't know where I am with the Lord. Let me encourage you, come to me, come to the elders, let's talk about that. If you have a small group, ask someone to pray for you, work through this. This is never meant to be an individual exercise. You in your you know, little closet trying to figure out, talk to people. Ask people, you seen fruit in my life? You see, you see Christ's work in my life? But let's not become people who've created a false category of those who profess faith in Christ and don't keep his commandments. Because John doesn't let us go there. The Bible doesn't let us go there. And he gives us that warning because he loves us. Test yourself that you might be in the faith. Father in heaven, as you've challenged us by this word through the Spirit, please now confirm both corporately and individually the exact measure of what we need to hear and walk away with this morning for the glory of your grace and the good of our own souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.